3: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by NatureBox, the subscription service dedicated to smarter snacking. Each month, discover new, nutritious, tasty treats like banana bread granola and honey crunch crisps, delivered right to your door. For 50% off your first order, visit naturebox.com slate. And by audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. The Culture Fest is currently creating an Audible bucket list of books you need to
1: read. Get one of those books free when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language.
3: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Guild This Edition. It's Wednesday, April 30th, 2014. On today's show, a French economist has conquered the American bestseller lists. We will talk about Thomas Piketty and his blockbuster, Capital in the 21st Century. And then, daily show regular John Oliver spins off into his own HBO show. And finally, Spring Cleaning, with Slate's own Brian Lauder. Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Stephen. And of course, uh, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Julia, we actually have some bits of business or a bit of business before we get on with the show. What do you got?
0: Yeah, well, I wanted to start the show by letting our listeners know about Slate Plus. If you guys have been listening to other Slate podcasts or um, have come to the site recently, you've probably seen us pitching this new membership program for Slate readers and listeners. And we wanted to tell you guys about it specifically because there are a bunch of perks associated with it that specifically have to do with the Slate Culture Gab Fest. So if you sign up for Slate Plus which costs $5 a month or $50 a year. You can listen to ad-free versions of the podcast. So that's basically less of my voice on the show. Great for you. Um... You also get a special bonus segment every week. We're going to take a, a listener question and riff on it. So, for example, last week we had one listener question about I think it was mansplaining, right, Dana? <laughs> Which
2: devolved into us essentially asking Steve to please mansplain mansplaining to us. <laughs> I think we might have woman-splained a mansplaining to
0: him.
3: <laughs> I think I got a pretty mansplicatory, you know, momentum going. But, you know, I took on a force of its own.
0: There was so much testosterone. There was a lot of my brain to do. was just illuminated. So anyhow, we're looking forward to answering more listener questions. And we may also experiment with the format of those bonus segments, but there'll be one each week. So again, the URL for where to sign up for that is slate.com slash culture plus.
3: All right, Steve, onward. Onward. Thank you, Julia. All right. Well, the first thing to try to determine when discussing this huge bestseller capital in the 21st century is whether one is going to say Thomas Piketty, which is, I think, how his name is actually pronounced. He, he being the economist who wrote the book, who's French, or whether you just say Thomas Piketty, Julia. Which do you want to do? I
2: think I'm team Piketty. I don't know. What do you guys? You guys both actually speak French. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to go. I'm going to go French. Piketty. And Piketty. It's too uh, much fun to say. I think that's I why can... we're doing the segment so we can say Piketty. As All right. Often I'll as do. Possible. I can go. I can go as far as
0: Piketty, but. I don't know. I You're can not give doing you a Toma? The full Toma. <laughs> can, we, can,
3: if, can we just,
0: can that be our bargain if we leave the first name out? Uh,
3: I love the idea of the full Toma. What is that relative to the full Monty? I, I, it does seem a little bit naughty. Yes, it does. Um, Relevant to the current topic of conversation, I spent the entire show last week mispronouncing Marquez as a gift to my enemies. But I have a whole theory about how mispronouncing words while also using them correctly is a sign of Superior intelligence because it means you've just read so much. Well, it means that you don't come from a cultural capital rich background in which you heard these words or names repeatedly pronounced and therefore knew them orally. Right uh, before you actually saw them legibly on the paper, right on graphically on on paper. You grew
2: up on the streets reading Piketty in the gutters. <laughs> you
3: exactly. I had to claw with my own Becky Sharp like fingernails my way into the libraries uh, of prep school America in order to discover these words completely on my own in the theater of my own mind. Which is why I radically mispronounce, you know, thirty percent of what comes out of my mouth. It's it's heroism in a way. <laughs> Okay. Well, why don't we um, segue back into the portion of the show? That's the show. All right. Well, um, this is obviously, we should say up front, almost more of a political topic. We're not economists. Nonetheless, this book is a huge bestseller. So let's let's dive in. For the first time in a very long time, the political left has a rock star intellectual to celebrate. Uh, it is His name is Thomas Piketty. He's a French economist and a professor at the Paris School of Economics. His book, Capital in the 21st Century, is topping all the relevant charts right now. It is number one in the category books on Amazon.com. And it is impossible, by the way, having tried to do this, it is impossible to find a copy, a physical hard copy of the book right now. Belknap Press was completely taken by surprise, blindsided by the huge success of it. And so one must practically e-book it in order to get a hold of it. Anyway, let me give a little introduction so we can uh, uh, focus our conversation. The book is both a historical analysis and a prediction. The historical analysis uses sophisticated statistical modeling to trace the nature of wealth concentration over time. So it moves the discussion of the 1% away from rhetoric uh, and in, into the direction of, uh, of high numeracy. Um, along the way, it reduces intriguingly the mechanics of wealth concentration to an elegant formula. If, Piketty argues, return on investment exceeds economic growth, this means that holders of capital are in effect creaming off more and more of the surplus value produced by an economy. The second part of the book is its prediction. Fortunes, therefore, because of this formula, because of this economic trend, fortunes are reconcentrating and we are returning to the historical norm of what he calls patrimonial capitalism. Therefore, more like something out of Trollope or Balzac than out of Updike or Roth. In other words, the mid-century trend towards equality was a historical fluke and not the norm. Therefore, as in the 19th century, so too in the future. The ability to make a fortune will pale in comparison to the one you might be born into or get by marrying into a rich family. Julia, we're not, as I said, we're not economists, but this book is the biggest thing of its kind, possibly since Keynes' general theory of employment, interest, and money. It's broken out of category boundaries, therefore so will we. Let's discuss it. Where to begin? What catches your fancy about the phenomenon of this book?
0: Well, I mean, I think part of why it makes sense for us to talk about it is that it's a cultural phenomenon as much as it is uh, an intellectual phenomenon at the moment. And Piketty is the perfect intellectual superstar for the moment because we're living in the age of the chic nerd, right? If you are a smart person who can marshal data, charts, graphs and figures in this, in support of whatever point you want to make, you are now... Somewhat surprisingly, incredibly cool. So the buzz in the journalism world is that Ezra Klein has struck out on his own from The Washington Post's Wonk blog to launch Vox, this massive new undertaking that promises to explain the world to the rest of us with charts and graphs. Nate Silver, the darling of baseball and then political polling analysis has broken out on his own and started 538 a new subsite at ESPN where he's promising to analyze the world with data and charts. So here comes a guy who's actually done decades of research and marshaled it into 700 pages of charts and analysis and it also happens to be a dashing and and chic Frenchman and people are seizing upon his work. I think the other factor is that what he's writing about is the political hot button issue of the moment, which is income inequality, and in particular, he's focused on wealth inequality and its difference from income inequality. Um, But it feeds into the rising conversation around inequality that's happening in the political sphere, with a focus on the minimum wage, the descendants of the Occupy Wall Street moment, and the progressivism we're seeing in the election of people like Mayor Bill De Blasio here in New York. There's this percolating thread on the left in America that focusing on inequality may be politically
3: productive. And so he sits right atop those two trends. Mm-hmm. Dana, this doesn't strike me as the kind of book that you would run out and buy necessarily on its face. And yet, the f- is the phenomenon going to sweep you up? Or are you sufficiently interested in it to discover Piketty in a detailed way?
2: Well, I should say the book is sitting in front of us on the table right now. I'm looking at it. It's a nearly 700 page long, very dense tome filled with graphs and charts and dense economic theory. And chances are, I am not going to read my way through this book. But I am very happy to read the lively debate that's happening about it all over the press right now. But it does seem like something that someone like you, Steve, who you know uses economic theory as part of your work, this seems like it'll be essential reading. No?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, well, let me say a couple of things about it up front. The first is that there's this wonderful uh, story that went around wonky Washington D.C. pundit circles twenty, thirty years ago, before the rise of Ezra Klein, the great superstar, was of course Michael Kinsley, the co-founder of Slate. He did this wonderful thing where uh, an equivalent blockbuster book to Capital was making the rounds of Washington, D.C. bookstores and selling out rapidly. And he took a little slip of paper and mimeographed it. And on it, it said, if you find this slip of paper in the back of this book, call the following phone number, and I'll give you 10 bucks. And he slipped it in the back third of all of these books, and he never got a phone call. A book like Piketty's is going to be uh, purchased. It's going to be bandied about and discussed, brooded about and discussed. It's uh, probably going to go largely unread. Uh, and that's one of the first things that uh, the David Brooks punditocracy is going to bring to bear against it, that this is basically a status totem of the cultural capitalists uh, to browbeat the financial capitalists with out of class, a kind of class envy that really has nothing to do with uh, – the economic or, or moral health of the vast majority of Americans. I think this is a completely invalid criticism. The book doesn't need to be carefully read by everyone who buys it to change the world, which is proven by the fact that almost no one read Keynes's General Theory of Employment, which did utterly change the world. Let me say quickly what I like about the book. I've only glanced through the book, but I have been reading his research and reading his research with care for the better part of the last five or six years. So I was familiar with his argument. He co-wrote these papers with Emmanuel Saez, I believe another French economist, that were brilliant on just the score. Um, there, there, there's one thing preeminently I like about the phenomenon of this book, and one thing that raises my suspicions. Um, the first is that in addition to ma- making fun of it as a status totem of the well-to-do. The other thing the right does uh, beyond Piketty that I think is very dangerous is they disallow certain terms of analysis from common discourse by labeling them seditious from the get-go. So if you utter the words capital, rent extraction, or even negative externality, which is a fairly common and sophisticated tool for just pricing the cost of all the bad things bad economic actors do and trying to attribute the cost to them instead of to the public right it's important that sophisticated economic concepts enter more widely leftish discourse and to that extent uh, i think this is a huge breakthrough the fact that as opposed to just having re- you know kind of an effective response to what we intuitively and anecdotally believe is a horrible trend in American life, which is the you know, massive over-concentration of wealth in the 1%. The fact that it's going to be data-driven and based in measurables now that this book has been written is a huge turning point. It is no longer as easy now that Piketty has written this book. It's no longer as easy to caricature this as an emotional or purely envious response. Um, what bothers me about it, though, is What's the solution? Well, he has a solution, which is a global wealth tax. And in some ways, it's modest. It's not an attempt to soak the rich or, you know, expropriate in any huge way this wealth from the 1%. But it's massively ambitious politically, uh, unachievable. He even admits unachievable politically.
2: It would literally be levied by some sort of international global body, that, right? That doesn't exist It doesn't yet. exist.
3: Right. Good luck Bill de Blasio doing it in Manhattan, much less, you know, God doing it for the entire globe. Um, to my mind, it took a, a large change in non-economic sources of public authority to bring about this reality that we're in now. And part of that reality has led to economics being the king of all disciplines. And I think the only way to get the corrective to what PKT describes is to rediscover forms of public intellectual authority that aren't principally data-driven. So even though I think initially this is a huge turning point, subsequently, we need to find completely non-data-driven sources of public authority in order to get the solution to the problem that's been beautifully described. How we do that, I'm not sure. People are averse to it. They have a skin reaction to it. They hate... Tim Noah wrote a very good book about inequality two or three years ago that was not a huge phenomenon. And I think, wrongly, people perceived him as being a kind of nag because he's not an economist. That's a horrible equation for public intellectual discourse. You're either a normative nag, a skull telling people how they ought to be and live, or you're a purely data-driven wonk awful. That is that is a symptom of the mess that we're in. It will not get us out of the mess that we're in.
2: But it sounds like from what I've read about the debates about this book and the big debate that took place on the New York Times op-ed page between Paul Krugman and David Brooks, there is a lot of, of storytelling as well. There's a lot of sort of historical treatment of, of long-term social developments, right? And something that really fascinated me, Steve, you can tell me, maybe this is a, a truism in economic history, but I hadn't really thought of it this way before. Piketty talks a lot about Kind of generational dips and changes in the way wealth is hoarded, mm-hmm. right? So that following the Belle Époque uh, in Europe and in the U.S. and the sort of robber barons amassing these great fortunes, there would be a generation of rentiers, as he calls them, you mm-hmm. know, essentially heirs living off of trust funds, and you know, then maybe some of those will squander the fortunes, and they have to be built up again. And so he sort of sees it—the cyclical progression of the hoarding of wealth, which was something I had not occurred had not occurred to me before.
3: Right. That is a huge. Fact, right? There there are cycles of wealth, there's a buildup that appears to be dynastic, and then you know there's partable inheritance. You have three kids, you have to divide it three ways. They each have three kids, now it's divided nine ways. Over two or three generations it can dissipate. There's inflation. All kinds of cyclical or structural economic facts can dissipate huge fortunes. But the huge thing that brought about the exception, which was the norm of my childhood, right? Because I was born in the 60s, formative years in the 70s, and then it began to change in the 80s. That norm of my childhood was brought about, as PKT says, by two world wars. Two world wars changed and the Depression, uh, 1929, snuffed out a lot of libertarian ideology in our culture. And then... The world, Second World War especially really established a notion of shared sacrifice, and then we fought the Cold War, and, and really what happened was Eisenhower kept in place super high marginal tax rates with the excuse that we had to fight the Cold War, and that was Eisenhower's way of keeping essentially the basic moral orientation of the New Deal in place. While being a Republican, right? So there was this consensus behind super high marginal tax rates. And we got a total historical exception from roughly 1933 until roughly 1983, a 50 year historical exception in which capital itself was not a major independent actor on the economic landscape. People did not make money playing with other people's money. So, yes, it's true that dissipate heirs and inflation and partible inheritance will probably in a cyclical way do away with huge concentrations of wealth in some instances. But this massive leveling, which became the middle class and professional norm in the the middle of the century, in the 20th century, barring another world war with nuclear arsenals, probably completely impossible eventuality and one we don't profoundly don't want we're not going to have that kind of massive across-the-board leveling.
0: Steve, I, I kind of want to get back to your point about desiring a non-data-driven advocate and analysis for this, but I want to get to it in a slightly circuitous way. One thing that strikes me about this book is that there is something that seems to me fundamentally French about a guy who's going to come at this with such a broad and ambitious stroke, who's going to call his book Capital, like literally just sit up and be like, yeah, Marx, my book is called Capital mm-hmm. Two, right? And who's going to try to posit based on very long term and broad ranging research, but try to posit a unified theory of everything. I do not know as much about the state of the American Academy as you guys do, because I haven't spent as much time in it. But from what I know, the notion that an American academic would attempt a book like this does not square with what I understand about the kind of narrow niche guarding emphasis within the American Academy now that you find your teeny little place and you make your teeny little point that that adds on to somebody else's or disputes somebody else's teeny little point. Like the mm-hmm. notion that someone's going to be like, yes, huge problem. Let me study it for two decades and write the definitive work. So I wonder if there's something about the continentalism of this book that feels discourse changing.
3: Mm-hmm. I think what happens is that moments of generational or near generational inflection point when big change is and has to be happening... People write comprehensive books and they hit a nerve. People write comprehensive books all the time and they just disappear. Even from the academy, when the moment is right, someone can make a grand statement. What I think is interesting about Piketty is not so much that he's French, but that he's an economist and data-driven. The last time we had such an inflection point was in the 70s, when inequality was just starting and there was a question about, and the welfare state consensus was fraying apart and stagflation was, in effect, disproving Keynes, though I think there's an interesting debate about whether it did or not at that moment you had two major statements of, of American political philosophy one from Nozick and one from Rawls within a few years of one another and you got two major and competing comprehensive statements about what a just society would look like But the basis was a theory of justice. Neither one was data-driven. There's a little bit of, you know, kind of fancy smoke-in-the-eyes numerology in Nozick's Anarchy State, the Utopia. As I remember, none in Rawls. They were normative and moral rights-based discourses about what a decent society or a just society would look like. And between them, they covered the range of the political spectrum. But what they didn't do was pretend to being empirical science and what I'm saying is that yes this is a tool it's immeasurably valuable I thought before this book came out that Piketty and Saez were doing critical and truly brilliant and path-breaking work we are going to have to find through it broader conceptions and normative I mean that hateful supposedly hateful word normative conceptions of justice and a decent society in order to affect political change or else we just have a description and stasis.
2: Steve, the only thing I have to add to that brilliant analysis, and I'm loving you explaining this book to us, is that I think that there needs to be as well an American framing of some of these same stories, because it does seem to me like... Europe in general, and France in particular, has a place for a public intellectual in a way that the U.S. doesn't, right? And so, the fact that this book is making a splash, whether people are even reading it or not, the fact that they're talking about it, debating about it in in public venues, seems like a very promising development for the way that the U.S. is thinking about income inequality and wealth inequality, which, in essence, is our problem. I mean, there's no place on earth that has this kind of this this problem as severely and is, in, in as damaging a way as we do. Well, and I think the
0: obvious lead person there is Paul Krugman. So for those of our listeners who don't want to wade through the 700 pages, Krugman's review of this book in the New York Review of Books is, I think, the one piece to read. He's very thorough. He explains what's great about it. And he has a very smart analysis about what's different about the American wealth gap as contrasted to the current wealth gap in Europe and in France. Just briefly, what Krugman points out is that there are super earners here and that the massive salaries at the top of the charts for very, very well compensated executives slightly skews the balance between income-driven inequality and wealth-driven inequality. Krugman definitely thinks that the underlying research and analysis still holds, just in slightly different ways. Mm -hmm.
2: David Brooks, on the other hand, in his op-ed page rebuttal of Krugman, has the incredibly irritating lead in which he imagines that this book matters only to people at East Coast cocktail parties who are wealthy and have children in private schools, but are jealous of the other people at the cocktail parties who run hedge funds and have more money than they do. There's not any attention, at least in the way he frames his argument, to the vast Huge differential of wealth between those wealthiest and all of the people who are not at the New York cocktail party, all of the people who are just struggling to get by. I get why that was galling, but somebody at The Upshot, another new data-driven
0: little web journalism shop at The New York Times, pointed out that actually the book is selling wildly better in the cities of the coastal elites than it is anywhere else. No,
2: duh. It's a Harvard University Press 700-page book about French economics in the Belle Époque. I mean, where do you think it's going to sell? And that argument just holds no water for me whatsoever. Educated people buy academic book. Therefore, it has no value to anyone else. Therefore, its argument means nothing. I don't think
0: that's even quite what Brooks was saying. I think... For all the flaws that are inherent in many David Brooks arguments, he is an apt student of the social mores of the coastal elites. And I think there is, you know, Steve, you're right that it doesn't matter that not everybody who buys this book will read it. But there is a little bit of like, oh, it's the hot new thing, the big mm-hmm. French economist. There, There is a bit of oh yeah, I'm going to put this on my coffee table because I'm that kind of person to it. I'm the kind of person who cares about inequality and I care about it in a smart way. So I'm going to buy Piketty and I'm going to know to say his name Piketty and mm-hmm. I might even call him Thomas. <laughs> um, you know, like not everybody is going to buy it from a spirit of genuine economic inquiry into the health of the polity.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And but also think about, think about what range of public discourse is disallowed up front if you take that approach to anybody from the 5 you know, not the 1%, but the 5% writing a book of social criticism, you're always going to say that it's status envy, it's demagogic, it's uh, out of touch.
2: It's that kind of po- fake populist anti-intellectualism that just makes me want to put my hands around David Brooks' neck and start squeezing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Dang, no. Wow.
0: You better cue the Malaysian bird song. <laughs> You've got to settle down. No, I as, a, as an argument... As a way of dismissing the argument of the book, it's total hogwash. But as a cultural assessment of why the book has gained such currency, I think there's a cardinal of truth to it.
3: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Anyway, the book is Capital in the 21st Century. It is by Thomas Piketty. You could also say Thomas Piketty. Uh, it is a huge bestseller. Your only chance to get it right now is as an ebook. but Belknap is firing up the presses at Harvard right now. More copies are coming. Tell us what you uh, think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have?
0: This episode of the Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to our listeners by Nature Box. Nature Box is the subscription service dedicated to smarter snacking. Each month, you can discover new, nutritious, tasty treats like banana bread granola and honey crunch crisps, delivered right to your door. NatureBox offers snacks you can feel good about. They abide by strict quality standards with no high fructose corn syrup, no partially hydrogenated oils, no trans fats, no artificial sweeteners, etc. One of the great features of the service is the monthly shipment. Most people nowadays have very busy lives. You don't always have time to pick up the healthy apple and cashew nuts that you were going to snack on, and so instead you buy a bag full of vanilla cream wafers from the vending machine, not talking from personal experience here at all. Um, if you sign up for NatureBox, you've got great healthy options coming right to your door every month. NatureBox is available in three sizes at three different price points. Uh, in the smallest one, you get five bags of different snacks for nineteen ninety-five a month. When you decide to sign up for NatureBox, make sure you get 50% off your first order by visiting naturebox.com slate. That's naturebox.com slash slate. We thank NatureBox for their support.
3: All right, Julia. Thanks. Moving on. All right. Well, last week tonight is the latest entry into a tight marketplace for late night hosts and pseudo news. Uh, the host of this show is John Oliver, an Englishman and a daily show veteran. I think it's fair to say that he's beloved and he's beloved because he's belovable Wonderful John Oliver, right? Don't you think? Right.
0: He's he's very beloved.
3: (laughs) He's totally beloved. Let's listen to a clip and then discuss.
0: Because the Indian election is not even that complicated. Just like in American elections, all it really comes down to is two people. There are two key people fighting this out Raul Gandhi from the Congress Party and Narendra Modi from the BJP. Okay, great. So let's, uh, let's deal with Gandhi first. And I realise that it is not the first time that sentence has been said in a British accent.
1: Um, put that aside. Put that aside. Put that aside.
0: There's no time. No time. Raul Gandhi, Raoul Gandhi, however, is, wow, that guy is handsome. Look at that vest. He's like an
2: Indian Han Solo.
3: Dang nah uh you agree with me John Oliver is belovable
2: oh completely belovable he's he's a big he's a big hit in my household because curiously back in 2006 when he first started as a correspondent on the Daily show there got to be some ongoing joke in my household that I was John Oliver <laughs> I don't know I think I had similar glasses at the time whatever like a kind of scrawny nervous energy or something I don't know whenever we'd watch the daily show together it'd be like you're on again the British guy who looks like you um, <laughs> but yes John Oliver is wonderful we debated when he got this show whether we should cover this as a topic because you guys did just talk about Stephen Colbert. I wasn't there for that segment. We do talk a lot about late night reshuffling of white guy hosts. And, you know, arguably, I guess you could say that's always going to be happening. Do we have to talk about every instance of it? But I think that this is a somewhat different show in that it has a weekly format, right? It's a little bit more time for reflection than these shows that are put together on the fly every day, which is the case for both the Comedy Central shows and the the network late night shows. And so it's a different conceptualization of what parodying the news can be. And based on the first episode, which is all we have to go on since it does only air once a week, I would say that I don't think he's quite found his legs yet, but I don't think you should ever judge a late night host on their their very first week. I mean, I just go back to when I reviewed Colbert's show and sort of said, this is a great stunt, but no way can he keep it going. You know, the wrongest review ever. Um, So I will definitely give John Oliver a chance to get his legs. I will say, though, that a half an hour with no commercials whatsoever is a lot of time to fill with just one host. And as much as I love John Oliver, I felt like he needed a little bit more cutaway, whether it was a reported segment from someone else or something else that wasn't necessarily just us watching John Oliver's face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's Belovable, but is he 30 straight minutes of Belovable? I mean,
0: I will say just in reference to that clip we just heard, I thought that was the standout segment. Obviously, Jon Stewart's stock and trade is making fun of the stupid things that the cable news show do on a daily basis, but because they're so dependent on idiotic clips from those shows, it does in some ways limit them to talking about the things that cable news decides to talk about. And they can make fun of them for talking about those things. But there's not necessarily as much bringing in of new off-topic information. That segment about the Indian election, repeated ad nauseum for a year every week, scolding everybody for not covering something important in international news could grow wearing. But I thought that was remarkably successful. I learned a lot about the Indian election that I had not actually learned from reading real news or watching parodies of the news. Um, it was funny. It was smart, uh, and it made me feel it. It began to suggest an answer to the question: Why would I tune into this every week? Hmm. If the weekly format allows them to do things that are a little bit longer, magazine-y, take a slightly more discursive take on the news, I could go for that. On the other hand, the fact that that segment was followed up by like another segment where John Oliver was talking, or a quick cutaway to just a video montage, I think you're right that he needs he needs his side man. He needs his he needs like Paul Schaefer, or he needs the roots, or he needs you know, the, Craig Ferguson's robot. Like, mm-hmm. there's... Yeah, he
2: needs some recurring shticky bits, which I assume, you know, will be will will come in time. But I agree that the India segment was a standout. It was really excellently done. It was nice and long and really, you know, gave some time to exploring both what's actually happening in the Indian election and the kind of absurd coverage of it on Indian cable TV, which is kind of a funny, you know, mirror image with many differences of, of American cable TV. And the fact that Oliver himself is British, you know, Britain has this special historical relationship to India. I don't know if he'll continue to talk about about you know previous colonial properties
3: of Britain, <laughs>
2: but, but the fact that he's sort of an international host as opposed to an American host, mm-hmm. I think brings something interesting and new.
3: Uh, I'll cut this baby in half and say I liked it because I do love him, and uh, I was surprised, however, how closely it hewed to the Daily Show. It looked and felt a lot like the Daily Show to me. It didn't. It didn't expand beyond that format in any surprising way. But it didn't expand a lot beyond that in, in any surprising way. Though I agree with you, Dana, and here's the other half of the baby, that, that, that it points in the direction of him doing something slightly BBC-ish and different for the HBO audience. It was more international because of the India segment. I thought the very funniest line was when he, he said, let's deal with Gandhi first. And then he paused and said, not the first time a man with an English accent has said that, which is a very cutting and self aware remark and it got a big big laugh. It doesn't seem like a big laugh line, but it it and it that seemed to me th- that's where I put my finger. You have something else that John Stewart doesn't have and can't have, you have you have a different background, a different perspective. It could be more international. Maybe it'll work. It seems a little bit like a long shot that he's terrific. So hopefully it happens.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, Steve, that there were moments at which it felt like he was doing a Jon Stewart impression. There's a, some stickiness to the facial expressions, a little bit of camera mugging. There was a moment where he kind of did a little, like, drum roll on the desk that was pure Stuart ease. And I get that they worked closely together for six years. There remains a lot of mutual admiration between the men. John Stewart has been saying incredibly nice things about his hopes for this new show. Apparently they still talk all the time. But I'm looking forward to Oliver working out his own talk show host vernacular. He's got the lovable oliverness that's being filtered through a like a instagram filter of john
3: stewart ease you know and i'm looking forward to that shifting okay well the show is last week tonight it stars john oliver as its host it's on hbo on sunday nights check it out i'm really curious what what our listeners uh, think of it it's a smart and sassy it's whether it's fresh and going to stay fresh is another question All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about another sponsor, which is Audible.com. Julia?
0: Yes, Steve. We are sponsored this week by Audible, which, as our listeners know, is the Internet's leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment. If you are looking to while away countless hours listening to awesome things, which, since you are a podcast listener, you probably are, you must check out Audible, which has more than 150,000 titles available, books ranging from current bestsellers to classics, and much, much more. Audible has a special deal for our listeners. If you sign up for a free monthly trial, you'll also get one free audiobook to check out. And Dana, I believe, has a suggestion today for what we're calling our Culture Gab Fest Bucket List. This is Steve, Dana, and my list of books that you simply must read to consider yourself an educated cultural consumer. So Dana, what is today's read?
2: I do, Julia. My bucket list entry for this week is Edith Wharton's 1905 novel, The House of Mirth, which I think is... Probably Edith Wharton's greatest novel and also happens to fit in beautifully with our first topic today, the Thomas Piketty book about capital in the 21st century, because it is this wonderful and very harsh parable about life in Gilded Age New York and what it means to be a socially prominent young woman who's trying to marry into money quickly before her marriageability declines. Uh, it's, 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 it's about sexual economics as well as sort of finance and uh, it's a beautiful character study. It's exquisitely written. Steve, jump in here. You love The House of Mirth.
3: Oh, my God. It's one of my favorite books of all time by a huge margin. It's just a, it's a tremendously poignant and beautifully written novel. And it's all about uh, you know misplaying your cards, as you say, and ending up for no really good reason in a lady orphanage. It's just a tremendous American novel. It's up there with anything by Henry James or Twain or, or Dreiser or you name it. It is in the bucket list firmly.
2: And a great starter for Edith Wharton. Like, once you start that, you you want to go on and read all of her novels and all of her short stories. I also want to say, too, that it's heroine is one of those smart, gimlet-eyed
0: women. Lily Bart. Yeah, who appear in fiction of this era, both subject to and critical of the social structures that constrain them. And she's just really fun. Like she, If you were at the house party with the parasols and the verdant gardens and the tea and the butlers you would totally want to be hanging out with Lily Bart, right? Mm-hmm. You would not want to be poncing around with those other losers. She's she's the, the smart one with the gimlet eye.
2: She is. She's an incredible character, which is part of why watching her struggles and, you know, her kind of downward social mobility is so, so hard in this book. All right. So The House of Mirth is is available on Audible, read by many readers, but we're going to go with the unabridged version read by the highest rated reader, which is Barbara Caruso reading Edith Wharton's House of Mirth on Audible.
0: That is a fine, fine addition to the bucket list. So again, our sponsor is Audible.com, and they have a special deal for you guys, one month free trial and one free audio book. Also, they'll throw in subscriptions to the Daily Audio Digest from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And you can find this deal and more details about the offer at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. All right, Steve, on to our third topic.
3: Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. We have wanted to talk about neatness and slovenliness on this show for years, but truthfully, what with Dana coming in week after week, blousy with drink? We've <laughs> we've avoided the topic, but this morning we have two excuses. First, Dana's had her morning eye opener. She's vertical and visined up. <laughs> And she's pulling it off well enough. And secondly, Brian Lauder, assistant editor of Slate.com, has written a wonderful series of pieces called Rethinking Spring Cleaning. Yes, new light means spring, he writes, and spring means it's time for spring cleaning. A 2013 survey found that 72% of respondents plan to spring clean every year. However, another survey found that 68% of respondents view spring cleaning as an overwhelming and time-consuming chore. Brian, I will just announce my horse in this race right up front, which is that uh, you know my wife and I, before we had kids, had the finger in the slovenly hell dike as it was. And as soon as we had our first kid, the finger came right out of that dike. I am Overwhelmed by clutter and chaos and mess in my existence. So I'm particularly uh, interested in your series of pieces.
1: Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about your clutter problem. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. What led you to this subject in the first place and what have you discovered? Sure. Well, I mean, one, I'm kind of a weirdo, so I'm into cleaning uh, and I've read a lot of cleaning manuals over the years. Um, it's just sort of an interest of mine. So I've read old ones and new ones and uh, Martha Stewart and all the rest so, so I had sort of a background in this and uh, the other reason was that um, as Cheryl Mendelssohn writes in her great book Home Comforts um, spring cleaning isn't really necessary anymore in like a in a literal sense um it was originally done because people's houses were so filthy after winter with soot and grease from their heating systems that they they had to clean everything every inch of the house to make it livable um, but now we don't really have that problem anymore um, it, It's pretty rare that your house would be covered in soot so uh, you don't you don't really need to do everything in, in a, in a the length of a week or anything like that at this point in time. Um, so I wanted to sort of rethink why spring th- cleaning might be useful uh, in 2014 and, and sort of go through that. Okay. Are you, in general, are you a fairly neat person, a clutter-prone
3: person? Like, what kind of a task awaits you, confronts you when spring rolls around and you might want to partake in the ritual?
1: Sure. It's. It, I am pretty clean. Um, I will not say that the house is, is always spotless. And, and one of the things that I try to highlight in this series is that that's not really the point. Um, It's about developing a clean sensibility, not necessarily a a perfect home at all times. Um, But I I am pretty clean. Uh, My partner and I clean the house, you know, every weekend. We do spot cleaning every night, so it, it stays pretty good. But you know. You have dinner parties, and, and there may be dishes for a day after that. Uh, it takes some time. So I'm not perfect by any means.
3: Oh, my God. I can only aspire to this condition. Julia, What I, I've always thought that to go inside a person's home is to enter inside their personality to some degree, which if, if you could see the inside of my house is a terrifying uh, revelation. But I imagine you live you know, with a decent level of self-respect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> cleaning is so personal, isn't it, right? I, I actually, even though I told everything to our listeners years upon years now, I feel somehow like shy and personal discussing my cleaning habits. I am one particular type of clean person, which is that I am someone who loves to read about and think about cleaning my home more so than I like to actually have a clean home. If you are editing magazines and putting them on a magazine rack before I take a plane trip, Literally, all you have to do is put the word clutter on the front of a magazine, and I will buy it. I don't care what it is. I'll buy, like, Ladies Home Journal. If you promise me a major package about organizing or getting rid of clutter, I will read that thing. Even though there's only, like, five pieces of advice that you can give about clutter. Throw it out. Buy little containers to put in your drawers. Here's a lot of photographs of beautifully colored containers. I will, like, go to the container store and be over the moon I love thinking about organizing my home and creating new systems in it. In the course of my daily life, I'm busy. My husband and I have busy jobs. We have two kids.
3: No, my house is disorganized. Mm. Brian, this points to something interesting, right, which is how aspirational being neat and organized really is. The container store is a temple to this aspiration.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely aspirational. Um, And, you know, as I say, I I aspire to it as a clean person just as as anyone does. And I I should say, you know, I don't have children, so that certainly makes a difference. Um, Do you
2: have a pet? I was wondering hey, you, that the whole time I was reading.
1: Yes, we have two cats, and that, that has absolutely increased the amount of work that has to be done. Um, and I have, I have at times thought about, wow, what what could I get away with if I didn't have these animals? But, you know, we love So them
2: much. Without animals and children, you can get yeah. away with so much.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> you guys are doing fine. If you're putting in half an hour of pre-bedtime cleaning, which was really the thing that put me to shame, that's 3.5 hours of your week spent tidying before bed?
1: Well, it, you know, the reason we, my partner and I started doing this was because uh, it's, it's so sad to wake up in the morning to a sink full of dishes. That, that feeling of walking into the kitchen and just seeing a mess in front of you when you first wake up, it, to me, is like the worst possible way to start a day. That's very demoralizing. So we found that that just putting aside you know, 20 to 30 minutes per night to take care of the dishes, to just straighten up, not you know, you're not talking about vacuuming necessarily, but just basic spot cleaning uh, can really keep things manageable. And then when you get to the weekend, you can do those more intense tasks. And then you know, certainly during spring cleaning, even more intense tasks.
2: That brings me directly to my next question, which is what do you do when you live with people, have various people in a family or household that have different cleaning styles? I mean, I, I know that you know my man always says to me, it's his, it's his favorite saying is you're never going to want to do it any more than you want to do it right now. And he's much cleaner than I am, much more prompt and more likely to address a task at the moment it needs to be addressed. And Always wants the dishes done before he goes to bed. Whereas I have a response to that question. I will want to do the dishes tomorrow morning more than I want to do them now because mm-hmm. I'll be less tired. I actually do prefer doing them in the morning. My kid's having breakfast, getting her stuff ready for school. There's a few minutes whole there to get some dishes done. So it's two different ways, two different levels of tolerance for mess. Any advice for those couples? Because it sounds like you're not in one.
1: Well, absolutely. No, I, I think the, the sort of the point of the series is to think about cleaning, uh, to find out what does work for you. So, not, you know, you don't need to clean at night and do dishes at night if that doesn't make you happy. It, it's 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 about reflecting, and I, especially during spring cleaning time, I think is a good opportunity to reflect on what routines work best for you and, and see if what you're doing uh, in the past hasn't worked very well, and, and what new systems you can put into place. Um, you're right that that my partner and I are pretty evenly matched when it comes to cleaning. I would say we have different... Uh, types of messes that bother us more um, I'm definitely more of a kitchen and bathroom type of cleaner, and he is much more comfortable in the living room and bedroom, dusting vacuuming, that kind of thing. I love to scrub um, so in that way we're a pretty good match, but um, you know find out what works for each person in, in those kinds of relationships and 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 sort of apply those as we go ahead.
0: I would like to propose a binary along the lines of various binaries we've discussed on the show. Are you a bronte person or an Austin person? Are you a Beatles person or a Stones person? I would like to posit that there's a distinction between people who care about their spaces being clean and people who care about their spaces being tidy. Mm. Like whether you were discomfited by like the dirt and the soap scum or whether you were discomfited by the piles and the stuff. Disorder. I would describe myself as someone who's fairly bad on both counts, <laughs> but is bothered by untidiness much more than I am bothered by dirtiness, which is why I like that my aspirational cleaning is to be organized, not to be spotless. I want to hear if Dan and Steve are clean or tidy people or
2: neither. Oh, I'm not. I'm not really either. I think. I think I care more about the actual dirt. I mean, I I think I would be grossed out if I went to someone's house and there was sort of like plates with old food sitting around on the table. You go to someone's house and there's piles of books and papers on the coffee table. That's just life. And in fact, Brian, in your entry about how having guests, how it's a good idea to aspirationally throw a party or have a house guest so that there are outside eyes on your cleanliness. I mean, there's no question that that would do the trick. But I also have this kind of theory that when someone is a close enough friend, it's nice to have them to a place that isn't completely clean. And again, that's a difference between me and my partner, you know, I think when anyone comes over, especially his pathologically clean parents, but really any guest, he wants there to be, you know, a, a clear coffee table for them to put their mug on. Whereas I feel like it's kind of a mark of friendship to move a pile of books out of the way and say, have a seat.
3: Aren't we avoiding an elephant in the room, which is gender dynamics, which and, and the state of feminism vis-a-vis housework uh, and the sheer amount, the degree to which patriarchy allowed a certain kind of work to remain invisible and assigned by gender And so in heterosexual couples now, there's a battle going on of kind of chicken and reevaluation, and I'm not going to clean that. You're going to clean it, and sometimes it's on the surface, sometimes it's passive-aggressive. And I can imagine in, you know, same-sex couples, there's a a similar dynamic that's not gendered, but it still has to do with, I'm not going to do that, you're going to do that, right?
0: Yes, no, I would say this is the single greatest recurring conversation that I have with women friends when our husbands or partners are not around. It is literally the main thing that I talk about with my women friends when they talk about their relationships. It's not a major issue in my relationship because I don't mind being the one who tidies. Now that we have kids and it's sort of all hands on deck, we split it basically pretty equally in terms of keeping their stuff ordered and the home ordered. And that has worked really well for us. But I do... This just, like, drives couples apart. It drives them crazy. It is the main, main Mm -hmm. source of tension for many, many, many couples I know.
3: Oh, my God. My wife and I will literally let the mouth of hell open up beneath our kitchen and empty its contents into our existence before one of us backs down on who's going to do the freaking housework.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, I've achieved the feminist triumph of living in a household where I... Get basically all the cooking and cleaning done for me, just by being much less competent than the person I live with right. at doing those things. <laughs>
1: That's true. I mean, one of the um, one of the things I try to do in the series is reclaim the term homemaking from sort of the you know rightful uh, feminist backlash that it has received, um, and and I sort of argue that cleaning cleaning is one of the ways that we turn houses into homes. So it's like our efforts in in that space to make it lived in to make it you know to, to sort of show that we are present in it and that we're making it whatever you know your aesthetic is uh, you, you're trying to achieve that on a regular basis is what turns makes a place feel lived in is what makes it a home so i hope that you know one of the things that c- can come out of this reconsideration is that homemaking is not a bad word anymore um you know certainly we want it to be equal and we want you know in my relationship there's no issue of, of a woman having to do everything uh but in, in straight relationships that's not good. But, um, you know, hopefully we can all sort of move past that and, and decide that, that doing chores and doing housework and spring cleaning is not is not a bad thing in in and of itself.
2: Well, you made me want to get down under my radiator and just witness what kind of demonic activity is happening under there. I don't think it's ever been cleaned under in the eight years I've lived in my apartment. There are several
0: pieces of great advice in Brian's series, which I recommend that all our listeners go and read. One you've already alluded to, which is if you have friends coming over, just clean the coffee table. Like, literally, if you just take the shit off the coffee table, people will walk in and be like, oh, these people have their lives together. <laughs> That's true. Total great shortcut. And then the other was to just look at your home from a weird angle. Like, get up, stand on a chair, yeah. and you'll discover dirt you never discovered. Or, I think in your case, it was dropping a bunch of quarters. And Finally, being on the floor of your kitchen for the first time in a few years and seeing just untold reams of horrible groatiness you had to get to get your gloves into. Um, I, I love those two pieces of advice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I just did that one again for this this year spring cleaning. I, I, I laid on my back on the kitchen floor and sort of just looked up, uh, you know, under the cabinets and at the mm-hmm. ceiling and the walls. And it, it's amazing what you miss when you when you're in a perceptual rut in your space. All right, we got to end it there with you lying on your kitchen
3: floor, um, emerging from a per- perceptual rut. I love it. The (laughs) piece is Rethinking Spring Cleaning. It's written by Brian Lauder. It's wonderful, very fun, uh, and filled with good advice. Uh, Brian Lauder is an assistant editor at slate.com. Go check it out and tell us what you think of it. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me and happy spring cleaning. Brian, would you stick around and endorse? Sure.
0: Steve, before we endorse, I need to interject with an announcement that is sad for us and joyous for our intern, Anna. Can I interject? Interject, please. Anna, can you can you come in and, and get in front of a microphone? Yeah. Hi. All right, Anna, on this side of the glass. Um, so, Anna, I I just learned that you're not going to be our intern until you're 80. I know. I'm really I'm really remiss. I'm actually going back to
1: school in the fall.
0: I know. I feel like the whole point of the show is to convince people not to go to grad school and to leave the academy, but you, in fact, are going to grad school. Tell us where you're going.
1: I am. I'm going to Yale
2: next year. I'm going to be doing a for starting a joint Ph.D. program in English and film, which I'm really excited
0: about. And then you're going to come back and just all about Eve, Steve, and Dana together. <laughs> That's my plan. Yeah. Or, I, you know, their
2: nightmare. <laughs> I,
0: <laughs> I, put the, I put the money on you. Um, but this means that we at the Slate Culture Gab Fest are in need of a new intern the interns hang out with us while we tape the show. They help us pick topics. They help us prepare links for each topic every week. They're, they're very intimately involved in how we put the show together. And Anna in particular has been great in being ambitious for us and figuring out cool segments we could do. Futurism
2: around. was her idea.
0: Yeah, and also the cool textile show we did at the Met. So um, she's been a totally stellar intern. And we're now in the market for a new one. It is a paid internship, about 10 hours a week. We definitely need someone who's available on Tuesdays for the taping. The rest of the work is a little bit more flexible in terms of when it fits into your schedule. Anna's managed to fit this in alongside her basically full-time job helping Will Shorts produce uh, the New York Times Crossword Puzzle. So if you are interested, please give us a shout. Email us at at slate.com Send us a short note about why you think you would be a great Culture Fest intern, Uh, and we will take a look and and find someone to hire. All right, Anna. Luckily, we have a few more months with you before you actually head off to the groves of Academe. So we'll, we'll
3: be savoring it.
2: I will, too. All
3: right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have
2: well, actually, you happened to mention the book I was planning on endorsing earlier in our in our segment on Thomas Piketty. I wanted to endorse Timothy Noah's The Great Divergence, which is a book on specifically American income inequality and its growth over the second half of the 20th century, I would say, mainly. It came out in 2012. It's a really good overview. Unlike the Piketty, it's not particularly technical. It's written, you know, from a journalistic standpoint, not an economist one. So it's much shorter than capital. It's much more readable. It's very funny. And uh, and it really taught me a lot about, you know, the GI Bill, about, you know, essentially everything since post, post-Roosevelt post and up until the days of, of that you're writing about, the, the days of the Ronald Reagan 80s, that led to income inequality being the lowest that it's been in, in recent history and everything that's happened to undermine that in the last 30 years. Very close, actually, to the research for your book you're no doubt doing. You mm-hmm. must have read
3: The Great Divergence. I've read parts of it, but not all of it, but I am definitely going to read all of it before I file my... <laughs> Um, excrescent manuscript. Yeah,
2: and full disclosure, Tim Noah, who used to work at Slate, is a buddy of mine, but I also think that he's a wonderful writer and, and wrote a great book.
3: Julia, what do you have?
0: Well, I'm going to piggyback a little bit on Brian's series here and endorse a book that I, and I know possibly also David Plotz, who I know is also a big fan of this book, may have endorsed in the past. And if so, forgive me for repeating either him or myself. But the book is called Home Comforts, and it's by Cheryl Mendelsohn. And it is the single greatest manual of how to keep your home clean that I think has ever been written. It is also almost a work of philosophy. It is a very strange book. It's it's quite long, and it's also full of charts and graphs. It would, it would stand toe-to-toe with Piketty, I think, if you put it next to it. <laughs> uh, it's equally important to have it on your shelf. Um, my favorite chart in it is the chart where she explains what all of those mysterious symbols on laundry tags are. You know how sometimes there's like a circle with a square, and then there's a the circle... The wool
2: mark and all that stuff? The mm-hmm.
0: circle with 30 d- degrees, and something having to do with ironing, and they all mean things pertaining to how you're supposed to wash your clothes. And sometimes if you buy something from Europe or Japan, that's all you get. There's no, uh, you know, line dry written anywhere in anything you can understand. She has a decoder ring for that, for those symbols and it's just like in one of the appendices. Anyway, this book, just a beautiful, interesting, thoughtful book. Anyway, it's called Home Comforts by Cheryl Mendelson. Highly, highly, highly recommend.
3: Ah, that sounds very cool. All right, Brian, thank you for sticking around. What do you got?
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm going to endorse uh, showing a tourist around your city. Um, I had the opportunity this weekend to do that with a friend of mine from, um, uh, Europe and he had never been to the U S or to New York. And so I, you know, Saturday and Sunday we went all over the place, did uh battery park, did central park, did, uh, the village, every part of the city that we could get to in those two days. And I was struck by how it allows you to see your city with fresh eyes. Um, th- these were places that I hadn't visited in months, if not years. Um, and even if I had passed through them, I didn't really look at them. Um, so it was really wonderful to just to just walk around with this person and, uh, and, and see those places anew. Um, so I recommend that. Uh, if you have the opportunity to host somebody for a weekend, uh, you know, don't send them off on their own. Go with them and, and really try to see where you live uh, with, with fresh eyes.
2: And you have the added advantage that you'll be frantically cleaning your house before that person comes. <laughs> this
1: is true. Yes, exactly.
3: Fantastic. All right. Well, um, Julia, do you know the difference between a log roller and a humble braggart? I do okay give it to me a log
0: roller is somebody who promotes the work of their friends uh, somewhat shamelessly and without always acknowledging the conflict of interest or they acknowledge it by saying i'm log rolling a humble braggart is someone who touts their own accomplishments but in such a manner that they pretend to be shy or secretly self-deprecating about the thing that's actually awesome that they've just done
3: okay well that's Fantastic. Um, I'm going to humble brag and log roll about my appearance on a podcast called The Partially Examined Life. But I want to go on to say that I am in no way endorsing here's the humble brag part. I am in no way endorsing my appearance on the show. I am not telling people to seek out this podcast in order to download my contribution to it along the way to explicating Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia with the regulars of the show. Um, They brought me on to talk about my – I a few years ago wrote a piece about Robert Nozick and his supposed libertarian masterpiece, Anarchy, the State Utopia. What these guys do, it's four of them. They get together on a regular basis and I think typically with a guest and they explicate a work of philosophy. But what they did that I found overwhelmingly impressive – I mean I was really blown away – is first of all, up front, they assign reading to each other. They Not the entirety of the book, which means people will glance at it and then BS for two hours about the part they glanced at. Instead, they carve up the book. They assign reasonable amounts of reading from it. They try to find the nub going in. Someone then summarizes the book or the argument of the book, central arguments of the book in 12 or 1400 words, which is made available to the people who are going to be listening to the podcast. And then not at all boringly, but with a fine-tooth comb, they start moving through the actual specific steps of the philosophical argument that the book is meant to put forth, and they do it critically. However, it's not an excuse for them to gas off or bloviate at all. I mean, it really is much more about getting the argument down as precisely as possible and on the terms that the philosopher intended to present them before someone begins to register footnotes, asterisks, and complaints about it. It was, it was so beautifully done. I was, I was literally kind of floored and blown away. I mean, I just couldn't believe, you know, it was all the very best things about people being a students and none of the annoying persnickety eggheady things about it. And by the end of it, this book that I had written about, I understood a thousand times better. I, it must be a remarkable podcast. That sounds so fun. That's great. Okay, that wasn't too humble braggy.
0: I think what you've just done is redefined humble bragging as log rolling for yourself, but since you were actually log rolling for the show, we'll let you off the hook.
3: Okay, the Partially Examined Life, check it out. If you already listened to it, because there's got to be overlap between our audience and it, please uh, let me know what you think of it. I think it's tremendously good. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. As always, a total pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com, or you can drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers, and our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you soon.
2: If we can't haul your ashes for 25 cents, that's bad business I'll tell you what we do Dust off to wintry bowers. Wash them out with April showers Cover them with fragrant flowers Shut
0: up the moon above Cause you and I Have a rendezvous under the sky Like we just clean
2: Yeah, that's the real cleaner. Back him.